John 16, verse number 1. says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. If I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and show it unto you. A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. So we're a couple chapters into Jesus' discourse to the disciples um, in the upper room. He's about to depart just a few hours till he'll be betrayed uh, by Judas, arrested by the soldiers, tried falsely before the Sanhedrin, then tried again before Pilate and crucified. And these are sort of his departing words to his disciples um, before this time, before his crucifixion. And so he's preparing them for what is to come. It's in this sense that since Judas has departed, he's just talking to the eleven, eleven disciples, eleven men who he loves, who love him, who are saved, who are kept by the Lord. And he's preparing them for what is to come. Um, And so he's been telling them some hard truths, but he's been also comforting them. He's been showing them some evidences that they can hang on to, some comforts, some truths that they can, can abide in. He tells them about their union with him and with the Father and that his command for them now is to love one another as uh, he has loved them. And so he says, These things have I spoken unto you, they should not be offended. He's told them that the world was going to hate him at the end of chapter 15. That the, if the world hates you, it hates you because it hated me first. They don't know me. They don't love me. They don't love the Father. But this is just an evidence that you are following after me. Because if they hated me, your master, your Lord, your Savior, they're going to hate you too. Well, why would Jesus tell them such hard truths? He's getting ready to say goodbye to them in a sense. And um, he's about to die. Why would he tell them these hard truths right at the end? Well, he says in verse 1 of chapter 16, 
that you should not be offended. I, I have spoken these things to you that you wouldn't be offended. Now, in our day and time, a person can take this verse and run with it and, and say, well, you can't say anything to ever offend anybody, but that's not the way that this word offended is used. Um, the Greek word translated offended here um, in verse 1 is just as broad as our English word. It can have very many meanings depending on the context. The way that we hear this today might be, well, you hurt my feelings. But it's, you know, when somebody is displeased, upset, or indignant about something. Um, and it's not that Jesus doesn't want their feelings to be hurt. <laughs> um, because he, does, he knows that they're sorrowful. He says that in verse number 6. That sorrow had feared their, filled their heart because of the things he had said. So it's not that Jesus is unconcerned about how that they're feeling at this time. Um, but he's not saying that his desire is that they wouldn't have their feelings hurt. There's another usage of this word, offenders, is to break the law or to sin. We use that word the same way today. Uh, somebody gets arrested for the same crime over and over, what are they? Well, they're repeat offender. Um, that We use the word in breaking the law as well as having your feelings hurt. That's closer to the mark, but that's not exactly what Jesus was driving out here either when he says he didn't want them to have their feelings hurt or he didn't want them to break the law. But um, there's another usage where it combines both of those ideas. It's where you're tripped up by something someone says or something that someone does and you're made to fall. So Jesus doesn't want them to endure something and then they fall away because of that. Or to see something and fall away because of that. Or something happened to them and they fall away because of that. So something might happen to you or you might see something or hear something or someone might say something to you that makes you stop on the right path and go around on the wrong path. And that would have been an offense. That would have brought offense to you. You know, you might have a stomach ache and say, why do I have a stomach ache? Why? Why is my stomach hurting so bad? And you say, oh, well, it might have been the burrito with ghost peppers that I had. You know, that was the offending uh, food that you ate that, that gave you heartburn or, or whatever the case might be. You know, the, we use that word in that way as well. It's the thing that brings sorrow upon you. Well, that's what Jesus doesn't want here. He doesn't want them to fall away. He doesn't want the trials that are about to go through to draw them into sin or draw them away from Christ or make them to fall away and just give up. There are many times that Christians can be tempted just to walk away because of bad things that happen or because of trials. And something will come up and a person will get aggravated, they'll get frustrated, and they'll say, there's no use in continuing on in the faith. I give up. I walk away. But Jesus loves these disciples. And Jesus doesn't want them to be offended. He doesn't want them to, under persecution, throw up the hands and walk away. He doesn't want them to be confused whenever they see their Lord dying upon a cross. And then they look, and the people to whom used to teach them the Bible, you know, they would go, they, they grew up going to their synagogues and, and hearing priests and hearing men 
teach the Bible to them and to hear the Psalms and sing the Psalms together. And they would go to the synagogue and, and they would hear the, the passages read. They would hear the passages expounded. They had the fellowship of their fellow Jewish uh, citizens in that synagogue. But all of a sudden, the Lord to whom they would follow would be nailed to a cross. The men who used to teach them the Bible will now become their enemies. Their friends to who they grew up with singing together and, and worshiping together will now hate them. And they will hate them in the name of, of, of God. J.C. Ryle said, excommunication, suffering, and death are the portion that the Prince of Peace predicts for his disciples. Here the Prince of Peace is saying, pretty soon they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going to persecute you. They're going to seek to kill you, and for most of you they will. And they'll, they'll do so in the name of God. Now imagine being in the disciples' position. Imagine people in the name of God who said they know the Bible but didn't know the Father and these people with no religion but they didn't know Christ. And now the, their world is just going to change forever. Think how disorienting that would be to see people that you have trusted and loved and cared for and thought were on the same page all of a sudden um, hate you for righteousness' sake. Here you are loving the Lord with all of your heart, following the Lord, and, and you see from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one whom the, the Scriptures had predicted. But your, your, your fellow Jews there in the synagogue, the priests, the people who were always spending their whole life pointing you to Christ, now turn against you. Because they say you have followed a false Christ. And then they start persecuting. And you get thrown in jail, and you get beat and whipped, and you lose your business, and you lose your community, and you lose your family members, and, and you have to walk away from, from cousins and siblings and friends and neighbors, and, and, and all this is happening. You think, well, well, am I on the right path? What, am I the one that's wrong? It seems like the whole world is, is against me at this time. It could be unsettling. It could be confusing. Like I said, disorienting. But Jesus says, I'm telling you these things, so you should not be offended. You're going to know going into this that you're about to start a very difficult time, and it's going to keep on going for the rest of your life. Don't let the hurting of feelings and becoming sad and disoriented offend you in the sense of bringing you away. Don't let the offenses of others cause you to offend and, and fall away. Jesus is preparing them because he loves them. And see, this is one way that God keeps us. This is one way that the Lord is protecting and preserving. We read from the psalm that, um, psalm that we read before services that the Lord would preserve his people. This is one way that the Lord preserves his people by warning us of dangers. When God saves us, he saves us fully and completely and finally. And he does this and, and keeps us following after him many times 
through passages such as this, as warning us of dangers to come. Now think about what he's given them so far. He's given them encouragement. He's given them comfort. But he's also told them what's going to happen. He's, he's told them of the problems that they're going to face. He's given them gospel truths. He's given them truths about himself, about the Father, about the Spirit. He's, he's shown them here in this passage about the Trinity. Now he warns them of dangers. There's the danger of falling away. There's the danger of the persecution that's coming. There's the dangers that the, the problems of this life and the trials of this life will draw our hearts away from Christ. And so he tells us these things, he tells the disciples these things, so that when they see that they can recognize and say, well, Jesus told me this was going to happen. Jesus told me this was going to happen. I, don't, I need not be surprised. Maybe this is, Peter had this in mind when he was inspired of God to, to write about the our fiery trials and not to be surprised with, as if some strange thing has happened to us. As if this trial is unique to us and, and that no other Christian has ever faced problems and, and terrible circumstances. Some people will tell you that once you're saved and once you trust in Christ that all your problems go away. That all that everything just turns up um, great for you. That, that nothing bad will ever happen to you. That sickness will be departed. Uh, your financial problems will be gone. And everything will just be fine once you believe in Jesus. We'll tell that to the disciples as they're sitting here with the Lord himself. You're about to face persecution. You're about to be abandoned by family. You're about to be going through troubles like you've never known before. Because you followed me. The world's going to hate you because they hated me. Not because you had done anything, but because of me. He's, he's telling them these problems, but he's also telling them these things that they would trust him, that they would believe him. That, that, that all throughout this, these chapters that we've been looking at, it always comes back to that. Just believe me. Trust me, Jesus tells him. Believe me. Have faith in me. Rest in my promises. So that's why the, the New Testament gives us these warning passages. Um, Colossians chapter 1 is such an instance. And let, let's look at that one just for an, another example. Colossians uh, 1, verse number 20. So it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be in things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his death, flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in the sight, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That's a pretty big if there, isn't it? Paul says, 
Here is salvation. Here is forgiveness. Here is everlasting life. Here is reconciliation. Here is heaven. If you continue in the faith. And there's other verses like this in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 6 that, that, that talk about these that, that warn us. So what does that mean? Does that mean our salvation is in the balance? Does that mean that, that salvation is ultimately up to how hard you try or how hard you hang on to? That Jesus offers you salvation, but it's really up to your power and your strength? Well, that would be terrifying, wouldn't it, if, if we could only be saved by what we could do? Well, what's it mean then? Well, it's kind of a scary verse to think about, isn't it? If you continue in the faith. You know what I think of whenever I read that? I think about how weak I am. And how prone I am for my heart to wander. And I think... How often I fail the Lord. And how often I have such little faith. I think about how many times I've already fallen. And how many times I've already failed. But you know what that makes me do? It doesn't make me despair. It makes me go to Christ. It makes me go and ask, oh Lord, keep me, protect me. Lord, I cannot save myself. That if there is too big for me, you, you must keep me. You must preserve me. And that takes me back to verse number 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, that I am reconciled by what Jesus has done, not by what I have done. That I was alienated, but it was by his work that he reconciled me through the body of his his flesh through death to present me holy and unblameable and reprovable in his sight. That was his work that he did for me. And then I go on and says, if you continue in the faith, the faith in what? The faith that Jesus died for me. The faith that, that I have his righteousness. The faith that he has reconciled me. The faith that I am presented holy and unblameable, not because I am, but because he has made me so. He has cleansed me and given me his righteousness. Though I sin every day, and though I'm nowhere near perfect, I, there is no condemnation for me now because I've been made clean in Christ. And I've been in, I have his righteousness. And then it, it drives me on to know that I can be settled and grounded. See, this if isn't to unsettle us. It's not to unground us, but it's the opposite. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled. That, that these are the means by which God keeps us in the way. That God reminds us of our weakness. He reminds us of our frailty. He reminds us how we have no strength in, in and of ourselves. Say, you don't have what it takes. And so when the Lord reminds us that we don't have what it takes, it takes us back to Jesus. It takes us back to what Christ has done for us. To where we can have as one man said, painted in lively colors the assurance of faith to be grounded and settled in it. Because it is the faith that we have, not, it's the faith, it's not the faith exactly that we have that saves us, it's the object of our faith. It is Christ that saves us. 
It is Jesus that saves us. So it's not the strength of your faith or how much faith that you have or how strong your faith is or how much enduring faith that you have. It is what you have faith in. If you have faith on your power to continue in the faith, well then you're you're in bad shape. Because your power to continue in the faith isn't enough. But if you have faith in he who reconciled us, he who died for us, he who presents us holy and unblameable in his sight, he who by, made peace by the blood of his Christ or blood of his cross. If you have faith there and you believe that Jesus died for you and cleansed you and saved you, then these passages such as this will get us off of ourselves and back onto the Lord. Um, One more example on how this works. Let's look in Acts 27. This is just a a way that we can think about how the Lord uses passages such as this and warnings such as this to to get our minds back on on Him. Acts 27, uh, 22. So, Paul was arrested and they were sailing back uh, they're selling him to Rome to be put on trial because he, he appealed to Caesar. And so what, they're on the boat and they get in a, in a big storm. Paul warns them not to go, but they go anyway. And they get out and they're in a big storm. And they're in the midst of this storm. Paul says, now I exhort you, be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. So this storm's going on. The angel tells him it's going to be okay. Just uh, nobody's going to die. And so Paul's there telling everybody this. He's telling everybody to listen to him because if they can, if they'll listen to him, then they'll be safe. So he tells them, "There shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but the ship. Everybody's going to make it. The only thing that's going to be destroyed is the ship." For there stood by me this night an angel of God of whose I am and who I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all of them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit, we must cast upon a certain island. Now look down in verse 31. So, so Paul tells them this. Listen to me. He's giving them the instructions. They were, they were afraid that they were going to uh, crash into the rocks and the shipmen wanted to do one thing. And in verse 30, and as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship when they had let down the boat into the sea under the collar as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the angel told them how they were going to be saved. And Paul told them, don't be afraid. The angel said, we're all going to be preserved. Well, the storm started getting worse, and the, the waves were beating against the ship. The, the, the uh, sailors were doing what they were trained to do. They put the rowboat off, and they were going to escape. And Paul said, Except you abide in the ship, you can't be saved. And so those soldiers heard that, 
And they looked at Paul and they looked at the sailors and said, we won't trust Paul. And they cut the ropes off and let the boat fly away, float away. Now, was it true that no one would die in the ship? Yes, that was very true. God said no one would die. That was, that was prophesied to Paul by an angel. No one was going to die that night. But is it also true that they had to listen to Paul? Yes, that was true too. Paul said that they wouldn't die. But right in the middle of the trial, right in the middle, what did they do? They forgot everything that Paul had said. They discounted it, and out of fear and out of terror, they were going to disobey what God had told them. And so what does Paul do? Paul said, except you abide in the ship, you can't be saved. And what did that do to the soldiers? Well, that kind of shook them, didn't it? And they, they feared for their life. And they said, oh, wait, we almost got in the boat, just like he told us not to. And, and Paul is very true that saying that unless they stay in the ship, they can't be saved. And that warning kept them in the boat. Now, God said they weren't going to die. And God said also they had to stay in the boat. And so they were get, getting ready to disobey. So how did they stay in the boat? By a warning. If you don't do this, then you're going to perish. So what, what do we make of these warning passages in the, in the New Testament? What's well, the same way? The Lord warns us what will happen if we don't abide in Christ and follow after him and, and continue to trust in him. And so the Lord uses these passages to make us think about what would happen if we cast off. If we got in the boat and, and say, well, I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with Jesus Christ. I'm done with the gospel. We read these warning passages that say, what happens to those who cast away and who are shipwrecked? And what does that do to the child of God? You say, well, I don't want to be cast away from Jesus. I don't want to perish. I don't want to be apart from Christ. And these passages draw us back. And so I believe this is what Jesus is telling the disciples in John 16.1. I don't want you to be cast aside. I don't want you to be offended. And so, whenever trials came, they could go back to these things and say, Jesus told me. I trust him. Jesus said, remember what I tell you in verse 4. Remember this. didn't take me by surprise. This was part of the plan that I told you, so it shouldn't take you by surprise. And then he says to remember who it was. That you remember that I told you, Jesus says. Remember who's the one that told you. Remember what I told you. Remember who it was that told you. This was a preventative for the disciples. And even when Peter denies the Lord, even when Peter forgets what Jesus said, in just a few hours from now, and denies the Lord three times. And even whenever they fail, 
they are brought back to, to Christ yet again. So it's not the disciples' great faith that will keep them in Christ, but it is Christ that keeps them in him. And one of the ways that he keeps them, and one of the ways he keeps us, is through his word and through his warnings. And so that's what the Lord does for them. That's what he does for us. He, he, he keeps us trusting in him. He does that in many different ways, but this is one of them. He preserves us by his supernatural power. He preserves us by his spirit. He preserves us by his word. He preserves us through the joyful passages of promise, of heaven, of comfort, of joy. He also does it through the, the passages of warning. What happens to those who would fall away? And they can look back and, and remember this and say, no, I believe Jesus. I believe what he says. He's faithful and he's true. Faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. That's what faith is. And Jesus tells them what he's going to do and what's going to happen. That's the knowledge part. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to hate me. So they know. That's knowledge. They will assent to that truth when the offense comes. That means they'll agree with it. And they'll say, we're being persecuted. Just like Jesus said. He was right. And I believe him. And that, that trust part is whenever they're faced with that. And whenever Peter and John are standing before the council, the same ones that put Jesus to death, and they said, I want you to quit preaching in that man's name. They can think back and say, well, Jesus told us. I believe him. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to rest in his promises. And so they had faith. And that's how, facing persecution, Peter and John could look those men in the eyes and say, well, we won't, you, you can put us to death, you can put us in jail. You do what you have to do, but we cannot disobey God. We cannot listen to men and ignore what God has to say. Because they believed Christ. They had faith in Christ. So Christ, Christ protects them. And he keeps them. And he loves them. But, but as he tells them this, uh, he says, I got a lot more to tell you, but I can see sorrow has filled your heart in verse number 6. There's much more for me to tell you, but sorrow has, has so filled your heart. But no, it's expedient that I, that I go. Know that it's necessary. It's advantageous for me. It's to your advantage that I go. Now, these disciples love Jesus. They followed him for three years. They gave up everything to follow him. They, they, loved, they love him. They love his word. They love what he, how he provides for them, the, the salvation that he gives them. They trust him. And now he's saying, I'm about to leave. And now they're just overwhelmed with sorrow. And then he says, it's advantageous that I, I leave. It's for your benefit that the Comforter would come. And the Comforter, of course, is the Holy Spirit. 
the person of the Holy Spirit will come and be with them. Now, if the Holy Spirit was just a force or a power, it would be the comfort will come, wouldn't it? I mean, I never call electricity he. I call electricity it. It's a power. It's a power, very powerful source of power. But I never say, I never call it by personal pronouns. I say it when I refer to electricity because it's a power. But how many times does Jesus talk about he? Nine times in chapter 16, verses 13 through 14, Jesus refers to the person of the Holy Spirit, he. The comforter is a name. It's another just like him. He shall teach you all things. In John 14, 26, 15, 26, John 16, 7 and 8, and then 13 and 14, all those times, it refers to the personal pronouns of the Holy Spirit. Masculine pronouns, the person of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying another person will come. Now, we can't see the Holy Spirit. They can see Jesus and lay eyes upon him, but they, they can't see the Holy Spirit with the, their eyes, but he is the, the third person of the Trinity. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to leave, but the person of the Holy Spirit will come in a special way to you. And it's expedient because he is the comforter and there's many advantages that will come. Now Jesus is talking to these 11 men. We have to keep that in mind. It's the 11 men that he's referring to. And so I think this was fulfilled in a very specific way in the early in Acts chapter 2 even. That we can make application of this to ourselves, but very specifically, they were in the upper room in Acts 2, 1 through 4, and the Spirit of God came upon them as they were, as they were there. Um, well, let's just flip over real quick and look at some of these passages. Acts chapter 2. Verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak one another in tongues, and as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the Holy Spirit came to them in a very specific way, at Pentecost. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus had told them. The Comforter had come in this special way. He had come and filled them um, with, with power. And it's unwarranted for us to look and expect this for ourselves. And it's not that we don't have the Holy Spirit. But we're not the apostles. That, that's the difference. It's, it's not that the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell us and empower us, but it's not we're not the apostles to whom Jesus was given this very specific promise. Because he says the Comforter will come and reprove the world. Well, how does, it rep how does he reprove the world? Well, it says in verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And so everybody was there at Pentecost. Out of every nation was there. 
Verse 9 gives you a whole list. Verse 9 and 10 gives you a list of all the different nations and all the different peoples of all the world that were there. And they began to speak, and every man heard in their own language. So this speaking in tongues is just speaking in a way that everybody can understand their own language. It's not a language to where no one can understand what anybody is saying, but it was a language it was in which everybody could hear what they were saying. The disciples spoke, and the Medes heard in their language, and the Egyptians heard in their language, and the Libyans heard in their language, and the Romans heard in their language, and the Arabians heard in their language. And it was, it was the Holy Spirit reproving the world. This was the first fruits of, of the Holy Spirit's work in, in proclaiming Christ. It says back in our text that when the Comforter would come, he would reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. So here's the world of sin because they believed not on me. And Peter tells them, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and full knowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands, crucified and slain. You took the Lord of glory and you slew him of sin because they believed me not. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Well, how? Because he rose from the dead. That's how he, um, he convicted them of righteousness, that Jesus was true. He laid down his life and he rose it again. And they saw him no more. And now, what, what does uh, Peter preach in Acts chapter 2? First he tells them, you, you took with wicked hands and you slain him. And then in verse 32, he says, This Jesus has God raised up. Wherefore we all witnesses, therefore being at the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So Peter tells this multitude of thousands of people, you see the power of the Holy Spirit to which Jesus promised. You have slain the Lord Jesus because you believed him not. And now he is raised from the dead. And you see him no more because he is the righteous one that he said he was. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged because of the, the, the Satan who had been behind all of this um, has been judged for Christ rose from the dead. And so what happened when they were convicted first by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, then by seeing that they had not believed Jesus, and then because of his righteousness that he rose from the dead, and that because Satan had been um, overthrown by his, by his death, burial, and resurrection, what did they say? What happened? They were pricked in the heart by the Holy Spirit and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost. He points them to Christ. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Look to Him. Now how was that advantageous? Well, just in this one situation. They went from 11 
in John 16. There was 120 in the upper room. And then here at the end, there were thousands. 3,000. And that's, Jesus talked about the word of God um, bringing forth um, abundance 30-fold. He says in Matthew 13, 8, 8, well, that's 30-fold of people right there. 120 to 3,000. The comforter had come. And it was advantageous. Peter couldn't do that of his own. Peter couldn't do that through his own eloquence. He couldn't, how can Peter, who knows one language, speak to people in multitudes of language? That's one thing that they thought was so odd about this whole situation. Was these are just ignorant men. They can't speak in these languages. Other people thought they were drunk. But it was the power of God. It was advantageous. It was advantageous because Jesus had to go uh, to the right hand of the Father to intercede for them. It was advantageous for them um, because uh, now the Comforter will teach them and guide them from this point on. Jesus had more instruction back in our text, but he said you can't handle it right now. They were not ready to receive the truth. It was expedient the Spirit would come because he would guide them in all truth. The Holy Spirit, by inspiration, would teach the apostles. Just as Jesus had taught them, now the Holy Spirit teaches them. And you see what happens through the book of Acts. How they go and they, they make disciples. And they teach others. And God, the Spirit, um, guides them in all truth and understanding. And they write epistles. And they write letters. And they write instruction. And they write prophecy. And where do we have those? We have it in the New Testament. We have the fruit of the Spirit's work in the life of the apostles in our, uh, in our New Testaments. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it says in Colossians 3.16. How? The words of Jesus, how does that dwell within us? Through the word of God. Primarily in, um, or by the word of God and also in the New Testament spoken um, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he, he moved them along to, to pin these words. The fulfillment of, of the promise that Jesus gave, gives in, in John 16. And the Comforter will glorify Jesus. Jesus is leaving, but the Comforter will draw them to Christ. He will remind them of Christ and keep them in Christ and glorify Christ and show them Christ. Jesus says, I know I'm leaving and I know you're going to miss me and I know you're sorrowful. But the Comforter will come. And he's going to remind you of everything I said. You know, that's why John can remember all these things in the Gospel of John because the Holy Spirit reminded him of what he said and gave him those words. And that's how you and I can love Jesus whom we've never seen because we're indwelt with that same Holy Spirit who gives us the eyes of faith to look at the Jesus whom we've never seen but we love so dearly and to trust him and to read these words and know these words are God's words and to cling to these words, knowing that Jesus spoke them, and to have faith in those and the knowledge and the assent and the trust in these words for the salvation of our soul, uh, because the Holy Spirit testifies to those things and has shown us. Oh, it's advantageous that Jesus would go to the right hand of the Father, that, that the Spirit would come and dwell in all of his people and pointing us to Christ through all these 2,000 years.
that we would know him and believe him and love him. What a great Savior that we have. What a great and glorious um, blessing of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that uh, we'd be encouraged by that this morning. Um, let's, let's be dismissed in word of prayer. And I ask Brother Harold to dismiss us, please, in prayer.